Thank you for listening to Day One Radio. Before we start the show, we wanted to let you know that if you are in Atlanta for A3C coming up at the beginning of, of October, we will be closing out once again the conference schedule of A3C. That is Friday, October 6th at 4 p.m. Myself, Brandon LSK, and my partner Maurice Garland will be interviewing the one and only DJ Drama. Dramatic, dramatic, dramatic. We don't have the sound effects, so that was my my DJ Drama thing. And, and Don Cannon, Cannon, strike back, or whatever the hell that says. We'll be interviewing our homies DJ Drama and Don Cannon in front of a live studio audience in the Toyota Music Ballroom at the Louder Milk Center. If you have not got your tickets yet, make sure you go to A3Cfestival.com. Back to another episode, another installment of Day One Radio, right here on ablradio.com. That's Art Beats and Lyrics Radio to be exact. Make sure you download the very free, very accessible smartphone app on your iPhone and Android devices. And B, tell them where they can find the entire Day One Radio catalog. Oh, you can always find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spreaker, SoundCloud, anywhere else you find podcasts. And always go to dayoneradio.com to catch up on shows, man. What's good with you, brother? Everything's been cool, man. How about yourself? Everything is good. Yo. Crazy, crazy, crazy occurrence. I walked out of my building okay. on the way here, and I see this lady that looks distraught in the garage. And I'm like, what's going on? You know, I live in the city, so, you know, there's always some kind of minor crime going on. Then I see two police officers. So, I, of course, I asked the cop, like, what's going on? <laughs> no, I'm expecting them to say somebody's car got broken into, somebody's crib got broken into. This man said there is a tiger on the loose. Ooh. <laughs> a tiger. A tiger on the loose. And if you've been watching the news, you know that Atlanta has had a couple issues with wild animals over the last couple weeks. I don't know what's Tigers going on. Tigers in particular. Another tiger. A ti- I'm, it, has, it has to have something to do with these movies that are being shot here. Mm. They said that uh, there was a fair or something in Atlanta and the tiger, that sounds like some bullshit to me. I ain't seen no fair in the neighborhood. But they are shooting several movies and TV shows in the neighborhood. So I'm thinking that's where these, these animals got to be coming from. It's got to be. But a tiger on the loose, my G? A tiger. And I was like, you lying. He was like, I got the body cam on right here. I wouldn't lie to you. And he was on this little walkie-talkie with his captain. And she referred to her as the victim, so she must have seen it or something. Oh, man. Dude, I, I walked in my car like I had on a million dollars worth of jewelry in a bad neighborhood. <laughs> I, I, was, uh, I was out of there ASAP. So hopefully they have caught the tiger before I go back home. A t- like, yeah, that, that's like the second tiger. Because there was a tiger going up and down I-75, what was it, a week or Bro, two ago? I don't want no problems. Tame tiger, wild tiger, a tiger is a tiger. <laughs> like Cat Williams said it <laughs> That tiger didn't go crazy That, that tiger, tiger went, went tiger, tiger. <laughs> Exactly <laughs> You ain't gonna Siegfried and Roy me I don't want no problems whatsoever Oh man yeah, But you bring man. up a good point I never thought of it like that I, You know what I'm saying Because that tiger They got on 75 They said it escaped from some Bruh. Zoo that I, or farm I ain't never heard of In all my years Who of in the hell here. has a Tiger farm In Georgia Nobody. Man. And when the last time you heard of any animal escaping from the Atlanta Zoo? Never. It's these movies, bruh. And I ain't mad at it. Keep the money coming in. We need the revenue. But y'all need to lock them animals down a little <laughs> real, better. Bro. That ain't cool. I ain't trying to go check the mail and, a, and I hear a roar. Like, I'm good. Hell no. Only tiger we respect is Tiger Woods. I don't want no problems whatsoever. But yo, we want to, speaking of Atlanta, we got to thank the people of Atlanta and the people from all around the rest of the country, world, wherever you are, who chimed in and voted for Hip Hop Trivia, man. Last year, we won uh, Critics' Choice for Creative Loafing Best of Atlanta. This year, we won Reader's Choice. 
And, uh, it's, you know, we're thankful, man. That's big. It's a lot of difference. You know, it's companies way bigger than us that do trivia in the city of Atlanta that's been doing it way longer for us. So for the go back-to-back years, that means a lot, and we certainly appreciate it for sure. So, man, you've been doing a lot of traveling lately, man. A lot of our, you know, latest episodes has been on the road. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. We This week, we uh, I was in L.A., and, and we have been trying to track this brother down forever, man. Every time he's in Atlanta, he's shooting something. Mm-hmm. Speaking of film and TV shows, right. but I don't know nothing about no animals, mm-hmm. so it ain't his fault. Uh, but, yeah, man, we have been trying to get him for a minute, and it just so happened things align perfectly. This brother has a television show he's producing on Tupac and Biggie that comes on Fox on September 24th, hosted by Ice-T and Soledad O'Brien. It's going to be huge. And we, you know, we get into some of the details in the interview about some of the things they're revealing and, and, and checking into that really haven't been spoken on before. And he actually was involved in a lot of other things that you you, you may have seen. You know, he, he the, the name is not necessarily a household name, but the but shows he, he, that he's, he's worked on. His name is always in the credits when you start turning always, the Always, <laughs> no matter what. So we want to go into this interview right now with the one and only P. Frank Williams, producer extraordinaire, unsung American gangster, you know, things on A&E, on Fox. The brother got an Emmy for his work on the Summer Olympics. He's done it all, man. And, of course, he is from the town, an Oakland native. I always got to shout out the mm-hmm. homies. So let's get into this interview, P. Frank Williams. We hope you'll enjoy it. Man, we sitting here in, in Burbank, California, L.A. with P. Frank Williams, man. Growing up in, in East Oakland, you know, I know I didn't know that I'd be a writer at all. Uh-huh. But I always like to do creative things. So for right. you, was it just about telling a story or did you have a career path in mind as a youngster? I, I, you know, me, I really wanted to just get out of East Oakland and all of the drama <laughs> that was going on with Fee and Mickey Moe and in my neighborhood. And I grew up in the funk, you know what I mean, in the dubs. And yeah. so it was a lot going on. And uh, I always saw that there was something more. I think I mentioned I would look in the TV and be like, well, how do I go there? How do I get out of here? So I was fascinated by television and film and as I mentioned, you know, I would write love letters for the homies in my hood. So if you were having a crush on Boom Keisha or Taniqua, you know, whoever, <laughs> and you was Tyrone and you can really couldn't write that good of a letter, you pay me five, ten bucks and I write her something savage. So, um, storytelling, brother. Storytelling has always been my thing and I'm gonna continue to do that till they put the the dirt on top of my little, you know, casket. Um, went from that to just high school newspaper and, you know, college newspaper and then from college newspaper to you know, intern in San Chronicle and then working at the LA Times right out of school. I got a job when I graduated from the Columbian Journalism School. I have a master's from there and worked for six years at the LA Times as a reporter covering crime and, you know, and just doing all kind of stuff, man. And from there, went to the source and was really heavy in the 90s, Tupac and Biggie and Suge and yeah, all of that, that madness. Definitely going to get into all of that, man. So for you, was it a, a culture shock going from Oakland to San Diego State? No, I mean, it, it was like, uh, you know, I remember one of the things that was funny, because when I got to San Diego State, I remember seeing, like, the letters on these, like, the Greek stuff, and I was like, is that, is that AOA? What, what do these symbols mean? And I just, you know, I had, I had no Say, idea. I, had, I didn't know <laughs> about damn near any of the fraternity right, stuff right, and right. all of that. And I just, it was uh, a culture shock. Even though growing up in the Bay was pretty diverse, I had grown up in a mostly yeah. African-American and Asian, you know, Bay Area, mm-hmm. heavily Asian neighborhood. So by the time I got to school, it was like, oh, my God, what's, you know, and it's surfer culture in San Diego. And so, but it was good because I knew I needed a culture shock, and that kept me alive. And, you know, being in the fraternities and being in student government and all of that, you know, helped me to graduate because a lot of people, you know, don't graduate. Right. Yeah. Most definitely. So, man, you, the L.A. Times, like, and you came out at a time where people were still trying to get jobs at newspapers. Um, to an extent, whereas now people are kind of afraid to go the newspaper route, cats that are graduating from college and journalism or whatnot. Um, And not a lot of us, you know, want to embark on that road. I think uh, Marcus Thompson, who both of us know, one of my good friends, is one of the few people I knew when we were in school at Clark that wanted to work for a newspaper, wanted to be a sports writer for a newspaper. So for you, what were some of the things that you learned and kind of just through the, the, the rigors of daily newspaper for a huge newspaper, because at that time, I mean, still, L.A. Times is one of the top two or three papers in the country. 
Well, no, um, I, I wanted to initially be a lawyer. I oh. was in JSA in school, in high school, and I would do all of that. I thought I was going to be a lawyer. I ended up interning at the KRON station in yeah. D.C. I went to Georgetown for a summer. That kind of got the bug, the TV bug, so I majored in radio and TV. And then I was like, oh, I'm going to do that. And then, you know, I ended up getting an internship at San Francisco Chronicle. And as soon as I graduated from Columbia, I got a job at the L.A. Times. And so I always knew that telling stories is what I wanted to do. And I like to go out and interview and talk to people and take that back. You know, I didn't think, obviously, you know, being a high school journalist that I would end up at the L.A. Times. But um, I just stuck to it. And back then, you know, that was a kind of a big deal. Actually yeah. Get, yeah, I mean, to get a job yeah. at a major newspaper. And, you know, nowadays people are like, ah, I want to be in no newspaper. That's whack. But back then in the 90s, it was popping. And so exactly. um, learning how to write and be a storyteller is the most important thing that I do. You know, so that journalism background that I have, Columbia and San Diego State and the L.A. Times and all of that helps me as a producer of what I do well, now. What was your beat when you when you first got to the Times? Oh, my, when I, I, I cover crime um, in Metro, I covered like uh, the daily like beat where I would go out like, you know, dog stuck in a tree, weather, <laughs> you right. know what I mean, a food festival, whatever the little, you know, stuff that they make you go do. Then later on, I went to courts, I covered courts. I started working a little bit in calendar, covering music, because that was my real love, was music and culture. Right. Um, I got caught up in crime, and it just got to be too depressing, which is one of the main reasons why I left the papers, because I was covering, like, some negative stuff, and I got going sick of going out to murders and crime and sneaking into hospitals and trying to, like, have dead people tell me about their relatives. It was, it was a very deep... Because this was in the 1990s in Los Angeles, and it's it was not a good time. And yeah. Every time I go out to gang killings and the blood is still there. Um, and then I started working in the Valley edition of the paper, which was like, you know, the suburban thing. And eventually came back downtown. And all, all the while, I was freelancing at the source at the, at the time, early 90s. All right. Now, how were you able to, to navigate? Because as somebody who as well has written a lot for the source, editor at XXL, all of that, I know that when I was there, which was in the early to mid-2000s, it was a crazy East Coast bias. In the 90s, it was even more. How were you able to navigate them greenlighting you being a West Coast editor and an executive editor when you weren't in New York full, full-time? Well, you know, it was, it was weird because obviously as a young African-American man loving music, um, the source was the Bible back then. You know, vibe was obviously popping too. Um, I ended up meeting Dave Mays, uh, ex the owner and founder of The Source, at a Columbia event. And I told him, hey, I want to work for the magazine. He put me in contact with somebody. Um, it was just a weird thing because, you know, being from East Oakland, you know, being in New York, they thought East West Coast was weak, that they can't mm -hmm. rap, they, you know, too short, whoever it is, E-40, that they're all whacked and not whatever. And so, but at the same time, they didn't have a presence in L.A. and on the West Coast. And so I was able to you know, from my early articles like AMG and then when Eazy-E died in 1995, um, I wrote that, you know, Tupac dying in 96 and Biggie and, you know, Suge Knight and Dr. Dre and all of that, I think because I was in L.A. and I was a credible journalist. And so um, it was weird because I constantly was trying to battle to get West Coast artists in the source all the time, get West Coast music reviews. And finally, we did open up a West Coast office at the source, and I was the first West Coast editor of the magazine and uh, eventually became executive editor. But it was tough, bro. They was definitely hating on the West. Yeah, I mean, most definitely. It's it's funny because I remember being in a meeting, uh, or a staff meeting, and, and Elliot, somehow Keek came up, and he was coming into town, and it came out that Elliot was the one who wrote the three times crazy review for Stacking Chips and gave it like two and a half mics. Oh, and in the meeting, I was right. like, what? Are right, you right, serious? Because right. to us... Classic record, yeah, you know what I mean? Record, so, yeah, very, yeah. very super Bay Area, yeah, area slang, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so, you know, but it is what it is. And so, you know, breaking those barriers, and it's funny now to see the YGs of the world and games and, you know, all of these people who are just regular radio. And, you know, back in, I was, I went to the Grammys maybe about a year or two ago, and it made me think back to maybe like 94, 95, somewhere around there, I can't remember, right around after the Chronic dropped and Death Row started to be around more. The Grammys would never let us really be on stage. Mm -hmm. We used to be in the press room waiting for that. None of the awards were on uh, the actual broadcast really that much. This is in the early 90s. And by mid-90s, it was getting better. But now, all of the black artists, even the host of the Grammys, yeah. is an African-American hip-hop artist, LL Cool J. So I think we've come a long way in all of those battles that we had in the 90s, you know, in the early 
you know, late 80s have paid off. Do you think it's because, like, the internet has made the world a lot smaller that that's why, like, kind of music from wherever you are is accepted across the oh, board? 100%. I mean, it, 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 the internet is the equalizer, mm-hmm. and you don't need to have a publicist. You don't need to have a huge label behind you. You can do your own thing, sell your own merch. You can make your own movement. Back in those days, you know, they had, you had to have a label. You couldn't really get into magazines or get publicity. You know, even now, I, one thing I was talking to somebody the other day, which is really deep to me, before, if you wanted to get at Rihanna or Drake or whoever, you had to go to the manager publicist. Now you can tweet Drake, send him yeah. a uh, DM. You can, you know what I mean, say what's up or whatever, and he could hit you back. If, if right. Rihanna got drama, she can say, you know, talk directly to the fans. And that never used to happen. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 kind of like to me remember a very brief period where artists would have like the 1900 numbers that you could call up and they would leave messages and now yeah, yeah. this is like direct and it's free. No, I mean I I get access to, you know, to different artists sometimes I'm like, well, I can't find them or you know, right now I'm doing a crazy investigation into the life and death of Tupac and Biggie and some people don't want to be found. And so right. I have to find ways and sometimes the internet and Instagram has, has helped me in terms of being able to yeah. reach people directly. And since I'm, you know, some of a credible person, they take it seriously. And so I'm able to reach people who normally wouldn't have got reached. Now, Del, one of the things you mentioned and one of the, the stories that people remember you most for from your source years is the uh, the classic black and white cover when Pac passed away. Right. Right. And um, you were actually at the hospital during some of this period in Las Vegas, man. When you, especially with the projects you're working on now, which we'll get into, when you look back on that period, did you realize that it was such a, I mean, we all knew it was tragic, but did you realize it was such a a pivot shift in hip-hop culture and in music culture, period, when you were there? Well, you know, I think um, when you're in the moment, you never think about it, right? You know, I remember, you know, I was at the LA Times at at that time back in the day when Tupac got shot, and the next morning I was there at the hospital um, and then covered it until his death and obviously wrote that uh, cover story on Tupac. Um, It's funny now to see how iconic Tupac and Biggie have become, how iconic that time, Death Row, Bad Boy, a little bit later, Rockefeller, Aftermath, all of that time, and I think the 90s nostalgia, because it was so classic and so much good music came out and you know from even the early 90s where you had to be an original a lot of people mimic and want to be that time because it was looked you know it's funny i see i was out i saw this little asian kid with a thug life shirt on <laughs> and i was like what the fuck are you doing with a, a thug life you don't even know what thug life and so i asked him and i was like so what does thug life mean to you and he was like thug life means riding for my dreams and doing what i got to do and so i'm you know i was thinking if i saw Pac, i'd have been like yo Pac, can you believe you know, what you thought is now, you know, my Uber driver, a little 25-year-old Asian kid is rocking Thug Life. Right. So, um, yeah, man, that, that that 90s era, nostalgia is all over the place. You can see it in the breaks. You can see it in, you know, TV shows that I'm doing, whatever else. But it was an iconic time, and it's a time that changed, you know, pop culture history. It's it's amazing that you say that. I was doing um interviewing YFN Lucci, um, young artist out of Atlanta who can't be any more than 27, 28 years old, and this kid, has a nose ring and a thug life tattoo on his stomach. Wow. Like, and it's like, and to him, like he said, he was a huge Pac fan, but he probably just doesn't realize how deep that is. You know right, what I mean? Right, like, right. and it bugs me out. Well, he's like, in I love was with the, with the, the imagery and the yeah. iconicness and, and what, you know, it's funny because now, you know, we'll talk about some stuff I've done more recently, but people are in love with the idea of what Tupac represented, I think, to some extent, and don't know the depth. And right. so he put the physical appearance and the thug life and the bravado, but there was obviously a deeper message, which I think he he uh, was probably going to return to back mm-hmm. before he before he passed away. Definitely. Um, one thing that you're doing and and have made the transition that you know I'm we're seeing more and more um, people coming out of traditional journalism and even hip hop journalism and going into television. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard you say that it kind of wasn't the plan mm-hmm. at all, but how did that happen for you? Well, you know, uh, like I mentioned, I did have a degree in radio TV from San Diego State, and I had a uh, master's in journalism writing part um, from Columbia. And so when I worked at the paper, the LA Times, it was cool, and then I started working at The Source. And so what happened was I started writing for The Source and being an editor, 
And then when the Source Awards and stuff started happening, I was there, and they was like, oh, you work in TV? So, like, why don't you write the show? Mm. So I ended up writing the Source Awards in the late 90s, and that turned into other music shows. It turned into the BET Awards, the Vibe Awards. It turned into working on the Grammys. It turned into working on the Olympics. So it sort of just happened, the fact that I was working at the Source, and we were producing TV shows. Uh, and now, you know, for the last um, 16 years, I've been working primarily in television and film. And uh, it was... I was thankful that I got that transition at a time when newspaper journalism was dying mm-hmm. and the internet. You know, I haven't really been an internet journalist, but I have worked in television. So it just sort of happened. And now, you know, I'm blessed to be able to work at it on the level that I do. Do you at all miss, you know, writing features? I do. I do write sometimes because I'll write, you know, I work on the show Unsung, which everybody knows Unsung. Uh, and I've been working on it for eight years. So sometimes I've written an episode or you know, writing that, that's a different kind of writing than writing right. me yeah. and Suge Knight, you know, in a prison <laughs> lobby, right. you know what I mean? Or, you know, me and Wycliffe in the middle of, you know, whatever city. Um, I do miss that muscle. Um, I'm writing a script now and a couple of scripts that I have that I do and I write the decks for shows that I do. But that was a time when people would read a 25-word, um, 100-word article about EPMD or Dr. Dre leaving death row because it was a big deal. We were the voice of that time. Now you got a blog, you got a Twitter, Instagram, you can say whatever you want. Do you, but do you feel, like, I feel like that's out there, and I feel like we have people that are 100% just headline readers, um, headline maybe first paragraph readers, right. and then you have, obviously, someone wants to read the long-form stuff because outlets like mediums st- exist, you know. Well, there's still some more people, but I think it's a disposable um, USA t- Today type generation. Right. I was a professor at Cal State Long Beach and I was teaching journalism and I was trying to teach these kids, you know, inverted pyramid and like the mechanics of an actual writing and a lot of them was like, well, what's on their, their feed and they're like, go skim it and rewrite that or they barely could write a mm. one page because yeah. they haven't had to do that, you know what I mean? And so I think it's, it's, it's good that we've been able to have disposable information, you know, quick little newspapers or blogs or you'll get a, your feed um, but I do think that the depth um, and the brightness that people used to have in newspaper writing and journalism is definitely dying. And uh, one of the biggest issues that I have, and maybe I'm, you know, I don't want to be the old dude in the club and shit, just mad <laughs> at the young boys. Right. You know, it's so funny, my daughter and my son, they're 12, and I have another daughter, three, but they love little Uzi Vert and the, the some crazy extension or something. Yeah, I don't know. yeah, Kev and from Florida. Yeah, and so, and I'm like, what the hell? And then, you know, she loves Little Yachty. And I just, you know, I was like, wow, okay. And I'm like, I don't want to be the old dude, but when I see a lot of these bloggers who don't have any training and can just throw stuff out and stuff is just not good, as a journalist, a real journalist, and as a person who actually taught journalism, I'm always just like, damn, can you at least get the nuts and bolts, you know, of your profession, you know what I mean, to, to get it right? Yeah, like the basics. Yeah, like but not that's knowing not how to shoot a free yeah. throw. But yeah, exactly. You can, I mean, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's great you that you got can handles, dunk, right? But, exactly. But that free throw and those jumpers is probably what you're gonna eat off of more. Exactly. So exactly. the fact that I've been a storyteller, and I've been very fortunate, you know, and I, and I, I, I sometimes I realize that sometimes I don't that I've been uh, a newspaper reporter, a magazine journalist, a music, TV, film producer. And now more so going towards films and documentaries and at some point, you know what I mean, even more short form. And so I've sort of told stories in all different mediums and it comes back to the fact that I had the journalism training because I can navigate that space. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it was a a kid. I was speaking at a school the other day and a kid asked me, was it necessary to go to school, college, Mm -hmm. to be a writer or to work in media? And I said... You know, it's I'm I'm not gonna lie to you and tell you that every person that you read or write or whatever has a degree, but nine times out of ten, if you're reading something and it's good, that person has some kind of formal training. No, yeah, I mean, or at least, di- well, a different sort of generation does. A lot of the young people today don't. They just, you know, but a lot become, of it ain't good. Yeah, yeah, and they, you know, and, and it's funny because I, you know, I do skim like the Shade Room or Baller Alert or all these sort of bloggy stuff where people are kind of like media tastemakers, I guess. Yeah. And people, there's a lot of eyeballs on them. I mean, to some extent, you could say TMZ is the leading media outlet in the world. Yeah, you could. For sure. TMZ. <laughs> yeah. It's 
I mean, and that's because it's definitely that got more viewers than the New York Times and yeah. more followers and more people. And it's, uh, yeah. I think part of that about? is the rush to be first. Right. Whether you're right or you're wrong, whether you're fact checking, whether you're right. not fact checking. But it's just, it's just the exploitative tabloid sort of journalism that does it. And I'm, you know, believe me, I was, uh, you know, in the show that I'm doing now, one of the things that's one of the beats or one of the points in the show is how the source and vibe and different people played up the East Coast, West Coast right. war. And, you know, uh, I have to be honest. I was complicit. You know, mm. uh, I was there. I wrote covers about Tupac, Biggie. I was in the room in the source. We were like trying to write the wildest headlines. We were trying to sell magazines, and to some extent, that media coverage led to the death of Tupac and Biggie because it we blew it out of proportion. Right. So, um, you know, it was just deep back then. Like when you think back about that period, man, like. In your, not even necessarily like from a business perspective, journalist perspective, but in your spirit, like how does that sit with you? Oh, no, I think it was it was revolutionary time. I think as a young, you know, journalist who came from traditional background, the hip hop journalism that we did um, validated hip hop on a global way. And we wrote real deep stories and we took what was thought of as a fad and kind of a party music and made it become a legitimate art form. Well, I'm speaking more so about what we were talking about, the the East Coast, West Coast thing. And I think everybody points to the the Kevin Powell vibe situation as like kind of the straw that broke the camel's back from a journalism perspective. But when you think back and sitting, being in the writer's room and like, you probably at the time didn't even think you were playing it up or like sensationalizing it It, because it was kind of what was going on. But... Well, I was just doing my job. Yeah. You know, and, 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 you know, my job was to write great articles and to sell magazines. Right. And do whatever it takes to do that. Um, now, as a person, you know, looking back now, 21 years from when Tupac got killed and 20 from when Chris got killed, um, I wish you would have had a little bit smarter things in the East Coast, West Coast, and we would have just not made it that thing. We created a whole war, but it was really a beef between Puff Daddy and Suge Knight. Right. Um, one of the, the first television shows that, that people, that resonate with people when they see your name is American Gangster and the episodes you did for that. And I've heard you talk about ownership and how, you know, that show went on to be licensed and bought and all of that stuff. And you had a huge part in making the show happen, but didn't have a huge part in the funds that came from the right. licensing and all right. of that stuff. Right. Speak a little bit on just like kind of the lessons you learned from the business side of being well, a creator. The ironic thing is I wish I could pull up a contract that I just literally was just writing on a contract. I have a, a project that I just got options and, um, you know, it'll be announced soon. But the language in that contract, you know, and I can speak in a real candid way. You know, I'm from East Oakland and I keep it the best I can. It was a real bitch and hoe. Even though it was my idea, I was a hoe in the situation and the way that they was treating me. And the paperwork was really filed. And I I read it over. I just got off off the plane yesterday. I kept reading it over, and I was like, they're going to own the idea that I created in perpetuity and that they're going to have sole discretion to do it, and they're going to pay me 25% of an idea that I created. And I kept looking at it, and I was like, who put this together (laughs) to send this to me? So for me to be like, oh, I'm thankful that you're going to produce my show, Mr. Hollywood Dude. So to me, it's all about, you know, I don't own American Gangster. You know, I produced episodes of that and did that, and they took it and they put it on another network and made more money. I've produced 20-some episodes of Unsung Unsung Hollywood. I don't own one. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm working here at Fox right now on a show about Pac and Big, and, you know, I don't own it. But then on the flip side, there's other stuff that I do own that I'm having more ownership. So, you know, do what you got to do to pay the bills and take care of your kids and your life, but at the same time, you got to be thinking about doing that. You know, that's why I fucks with Tyler Perry. That's yeah. why I think people like Master P. That's why I think people like Hove. You know, people thinking on that kind of line, whether it be Kanye, where they just be like, you know, I was just listening to um, four four four. Yeah. And you know, I kept replaying it in the gym in New York, and it was generational wealth is the only way you're gonna do it. You know, and I work in a business where a certain culture owns a lot of it, whether it be the music or the Hollywood part of it, and. It's a constant battle because we make the art, we create it, we are the movement, we make the music, the sounds, the flyness, and we just don't even own our own stuff. So that's that's where you got to be. That's why I mess with a lot of these young artists because they have their own movements, they're owning their own shit, right. they're doing it. They're like, fuck Def Jam, fuck Atlantic, 
fuck, you know, bad boy or fuck whoever you want to deal with or source. We're going to start our own magazines, own TV shows, own albums and do it. And so, um, you know, that's where you got to be at, you know. So, um, and it's crazy to me that like you these people know who you are. Mm. You've, you've been producing for a while, like your resume is extensive and to still bring you a bullshit deal. Like you I just, just started. I just, I just I don't know if it's if you people just they just that's what it is. They think you're just gonna be a hoe. And I you know I was talking to my agent, and he was just he's like I don't want to have to talk you off the ledge. It's a it's a multi million dollar project, and you know if there's a if there's a million dollars, and somebody says hey I'll give you two hundred and fifty thousand twenty five percent of that million dollars, but the million dollars was your idea from the beginning, and they may have a few more resources, a bigger company or whatever else. And you know, quote ability to get it on a network. What what does that mean? Right. Where do I, how do I break the cycle and get to the Jay Z phase where I'm owning and, and hiring versus mm-hmm. being hired? And so I'm very keenly aware of that. That's like the most important thing to me right now in my career. Um, Richard Pryor, who I admire a lot, um, would make sure that there was gaffers. Would make sure that there there's a DP. Make sure that there was PAs. And refuse to show up on set to that was for people of color. Um, I just recently worked on a show, and it was some people who I was working with who had no cultural understanding of what was going on, and it resulted in a horrible edit, a horrible experience because they were culturally ignorant, and really to some extent, um, I encounter a lot of situations where, as an African American, they think they know you and know your world, right? And that they know and they can do whatever else, and which is not true. The actual is the reverse is that a black man, I exist in a white mainstream, sort of white supremacist universe, and I have to know you and I know me. Yep. I, I used to describe it as the faux and the four. When I'm with my partners, it's like, oh man, it was four people up in the corner, we was kicking it. And then when I get to the office that just visited me, I said, hey, hey, there were four people in the corner and we were just chit-chatting. Right. We have to do both. And so for me, the goal should always be, even if that contract they just sent me was trying to be 25% of an idea that I created. So I fall back. I'm like, I want half. And if I don't get half, I'm like, well, at least it'll get on TV. At least I get a third. And I take that. I flip that to my own office and do my own thing. And then I hire people on the show that I'm working on. Today, I got five people of color hired. Nice. You you, you won't ever um, see that anywhere. Right. But that's progress. So to me, that's how you get ahead, you know, controlling uh, the hiring and firing process is most important, and the budget and the money. All right, piggybacking off of that, um, you um, and I'm drawing the the your profit profit from an entertainment. It's right. an office that I still yeah, have. You know, I've multi- produced multiple shows out of that, and you know, um, small production company. But I co-produce things with people. I have a big project that I just told you that is coming out on um, the top of next year. Um, we still do digital content. All of that, you know, currently I'm working in somebody else's office today because I've got hired to do this, but I do sort of vacillate back and forth between and the goal being, you know, that I can do my own thing at all times. But, you know, you got to play by the rules sometimes and do your thing. Most definitely. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the the whole unsung thing, which I thought was really cool. Like, obviously, we all love unsung, but, you know, for you to be able to get people that, and it, granted, the theme is unsung, but there are people, there's unsung and then there's really like right, 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 right. unsung. Right, right, so right, for right, you right. to be able to get, you know, people like Sheila E., mm-hmm. Gil Scott Heron, right. Quick, you know, 40, stuff like that on us. And half the time, some of these artists don't even want to do it. Right. You know well, what I mean? Well, I, mean <laughs> I think, you know, um, and I always say this, I just was telling somebody, because on this show that I'm doing, you know, more than half or three fourths of the people did it because I, they believed in me and knew me. Right. And so DJ Quick is believing in that I'm not going to do him wrong. Too Short is believing that he know me for 15 years. A Bone Thug is like, you wrote our first source cover in 1996. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that credibility in what you do in the past comes to the table. And so, you know, it's funny to see, like myself, you know, producing television. Selwyn Hines used to be the editor of Source, who's writing movies. Yeah. Carlito Rodriguez is working on Empire. You know what I mean? Elliot is now on Rap Radar doing television. And Sasha Jenkins, who worked, you know, Mass Appeal and other stuff like that, is producing docs. Eric Parker is working on A&E. So yeah, Deni- yeah, and yeah. so, you know, there's a bunch of us who came from that world have now transitioned. And so um, we're fortunate to be able to have done that, you know. Definitely. I mean, I look to, to you guys and watch what all of you guys do and just kind of learn, you know, through osmosis. 
for sure. So, you know, major props on all of that. Um, one of the things that I thought was super interesting that you did, and people know you from documentaries and working on music and things of that nature, but the um, the, the film that you did on the madam. Ah. <laughs> Folks don't know about that. Well, they always know about Unsung. And, you know, it's I'm, I'm thankful about the Unsung because I think people love that show because well, it tells stories. But yeah. the madam... You know, I, I like wild, you know, just crazy stuff happens. She was a Mormon madam, and she really grew up Mormon and ended up back in the world. She was a girl who was out there in the world and then had a bad experience with the pimp and flipped the table. And so she's a, you know, multimillion-dollar Mormon madam. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not mad. You know, people people want to know stories, and that's one of them, you know, as the Curtis Bow say, there's eight million stories in the naked city. This is just one, you know. Most definitely. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. For you, man, what are some of the other the, the stories that you were, because I've heard several projects that you were working on, and I don't know what stage is there, from the Roger Troutman thing to the well, children I mean, of the right Black now, Panthers. Right now, um, you know, I did work on an A&E project about Tupac that's supposed to come out right. um, that I produced, um, and then I'm working currently on this Fox project, Tupac and Biggie, which airs on September 24th. It's being hosted by Ice-T and Soledad O'Brien. I'm working as a producer on that and How putting that, that together. How has that been? It's very hectic. Uh, it's not something that people want to necessarily want to talk about who shot Tupac or who shot Biggie and why and what happened to their friendship, East Coast, West Coast, Quad, all of that. But it's been a revealing and, you know, I do this for the fans. You know, mm. for me, um, I always tell people I feel like my role as a producer, as a writer, as a journalist is to take a Polaroid of the situation. Take that picture. You check it out. You make your own judgment. I was just there. Suge Knight, you don't know Suge Knight. Uh, you don't know Sheila E. You don't know whoever. You in your neighborhood in Cleveland, Miami, whatever. I'm your conduit. So it's my job to take that snapshot, come back and give it to you and report from the streets. So um, that's always been my, my blessing is to be able to, you know, act as the, the voice of the people, you know, and, and, and ask Suge Knight, did you kill Biggie Smalls? Because mm. people want to know. Right. Where you, did you have a hand in the murder of Tupac? Because people want to know. Right. So um, in addition, I, I still uh, the Roger Trotman movie is in motion um, and I, it's like my passion project. Um, the script is being moved around a bunch of different places and I think it's going to go. I have a project about the Black Panther Party that um, is supposed to drop early next year um, and a couple other really cool things that are, that are happening. So um, I try not to talk about things until the deal is out and the announcement. But, um, you know, it's good. I think it's, it's a really great time to be in black entertainment. Um, especially anything 90s, definitely 90s hip-hop. Um, for a long time, Hollywood tried to say that black and Latino stories don't sell internationally and all of that, but I think no, the success, the straight out of Compton, yeah. um, Empire, stuff like that. Girls you can trip. see, Yeah, girls yeah. trip, whatever. You know, and not to say that they like you or really want to be with you, and in no disrespect to Fox, but I don't think they really care about Tupac and Biggie, but it's about the money. Yeah. And so to me right now, black entertainment is popping, and, I want to ride that wave and get as much content out there as I can and, and get as many people of color hired. Do you think that's why now that these stories are being told because they've seen the success of these other films and television shows? Um, what does Bishop Magic Dine want to say? Uh, <laughs> green is for the money, gold is for, for the money. Hundred. Yeah, right. so of course, man, it's about the paper, man. You know, it's, it's not like that. Again, I'm never, I grew up in East Oakland. I was a child of the Black Panther Party. I saw the street life, I see what it is, and I work in Hollywood, and often I'm the one black person, you know, working on shows, and I I, I get it. It's about money. You know? 100%. So, you you know, we can talk about, you know, stuff that is already green, that's mm -hmm. going. So having, you know, such a powerful, respected voice like Soledad O'Brien involved and having such a well-respected, you know, actor and artist and Ice-T involved in, the, in this Tupac and Biggie thing, man, how did that... How did what kind of wrinkle did that bring to a story that you know you've told before writing? You yeah, know, but I think in this particular situation, what's going to be different is Ice is a real artist in the world and mm -hmm. has real credentials and speaks to artists in a different way than most people can because he's a peer. So with that, as a respected journalist who knows how to go in and get the truth, nobody has ever definitively sort of told you, a, how did these guys meet? What happened to their friendship? And then b how did they end up dead and who killed them? And so we're moving towards that in a resolution-minded situation where the fans will finally get that in a definitive way with maybe a gun, you know, maybe a, you know, real idea of who did it and why. 
And uh, I know people want that. And I, and I think for me, I know that's only fair for Afeni, and it's only yeah. fair for Miss Wallace to um, get that closure. And for Tupac, who I wasn't a big friend of, but I did meet in real life, um, I, you know, I'm happy that he will finally hopefully get some resolution. And as well for Chris, you know, who was a good guy and uh, was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so that's always my goal is just to, you know, just to tell the truth. So it's going to be a shocking show. You know, you're here in my office here in L.A. And um, as you can see from the board, there's some yeah. wild shit going on. And um, it's very deep. And, uh, you know, um, definitely a cautionary tale. Uh, you were around, you know, for a lot of the stuff you wrote on a lot of it. Were there things that you learned doing research and producing this show? Well, I, I think that, you know, um, I did this Young Jeezy movie for Def Jam, uh, Hustler's Ambition. That was the joint with Samuel Jackson. Yeah, with Samuel Jackson was the VO guy. And one of the things that I learned from that is that um, not so much that you got to stay in your lane, but you have to grow and leave things behind in order to be better. And you can't stay stuck. And you can and always be who you are. And so for Tupac, who obviously uh, his fans love him, and obviously I'm a great admirer of his work, might have got caught up in a situation where he was taking on other people's beef and or not being true to himself. And I think that may have cost him his life. And so I always say, you know, do you. And don't try to, as Daz told me, you know, you can't act gangster. Either you are or you aren't. And so for me, you know, I'm not a thug. You know, I'm from the streets. I did some different things or whatever else, but I'm a storyteller. And so at the end of the day, I just want to tell people these good stories. And, you know, I'm hoping that, whatever they learn from this, watching this Ice-T, Soledad, O'Brien, um, Tupac, Biggie show that airs September 24th on Fox is don't get caught up, mm. you know? And I think Biggie didn't get caught up as much, but some of the people around him got caught up. And unfortunately, from a dude who knows it, um, hip-hop and the streets mirror each other. And so for us, uh, we're one of the few musics where the street life and gang life and, 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 and drugs and guns with that rappers rap about is usually where they came from and is what's real. Right. And they can eventually and sometimes get put themselves in the same situation. Yeah. The music mirrors the reality. Because if they're not doing it, the person next to them or right. the person the homie, yes, to them is, right, is right. definitely... And in Tupac's case, the homie next to him put him in a situation. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that ended, it, ended his life. Definitely. Um, one thing that you had started a couple years ago, I think two, three years ago, that um, I wanted to find out what is the, the status of and what are some of the things you learned from it was the Hip Hop TV project. Yeah, Hip Hop TV is still popping. Um, we had a one uh, cycle of really great funding. We're still up in Adam. We're about to uh, relaunch um, at the end of the year. And uh, Hip Hop TV, 24-hour platform. It's just tough, you know, African-American technology. Um, not naming names, but it is easier for young Caucasian and Asian kids to get money and technology and I think that's a huge gap that us as African Americans or people of color on the globe where we need to be and so for me a 24-hour OTT platform is what hip-hop TV is and we will continue to grow that definitely um who is the who have you wanted I don't even know if you've approached them who have you wanted to do an unsung on it it hasn't happened yet oh well that's a good one um one of my favorite ones finally did happen was Gil Scott Heron yeah. It's one of the best pieces I ever did. Um, I had approached Cameo. I'm a big Cameo fan. That didn't happen. Um, one of my top people was Frankie Beverly and Mays. I grew up a lot. Oh, man. And yeah. uh, people love Frankie Beverly and Mays, and it didn't happen. Uh, MC Light, who was a friend of mine, um, I did a show called Being, where I was executive producer of that show on Centric, and I've been wanting to get her to do uh, Unsung, but she won't do it. Why so. not? I just think some people think it's means that you're played out. And, you I know, feel like she does so much stuff that people don't even know that she's but some, involved But I think in. sometimes people f get a misnomer about Unsung. You think it's if you're played off, you're a drug addict, or you're whack, or you're not popping. Right. Which is the, the converse, really. You know, once DJ Quick did the Unsung, his iTunes spiked. Once, you know, Zap did Unsung, their bookings doubled because people got to see their stories and their fans related. So it just depends, you know. Um... Yeah, but frankly, Beverly and Mays, uh, another top one, which I started, but I don't know if it's ever going to happen, is uh, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. That would be crazy. Yeah, because I think people would forget just how similar important they were as a group. Definitely. Uh, how is it for you? I think I, I saw you post a picture 
to see guys from Junior Mafia and, and, and the Outlaws come together and be cool and, and squash beefs and talk stuff out to where, you know, there was a misunderstanding. I think a lot of people forget that these people were, they were kids. Yeah. Like, we often look through things through our 30-something-year-old, 40-something-year-old mind, but Pac was 25, 26. Big was 24, 25, which means C's was freaking right. 12 when we but first saw him. Think like, about some of the things that you did as a young man and yeah. your your knowledge of whatever. And, you know, I think a lot of times we get caught up in the hype. And so in getting season and, and Edie to sort of reconcile on air for the first time, um, to me it was symbolism because it was almost like Tupac and Biggie doing it, which was my yeah. goal in producing it that way. But it's like a friend you was beefing with in high school, and now you still, you're going to still hold on to that beef? You're a grown man with kids or a life, and you're still out there trying to act like you, whatever, you know. Um, I'm thankful to be here. I've had guns pulled on me multiple times, you know. Um, Edie was in the car right behind Tupac. Caesar's in the back seat. Right. And so it wasn't as if they couldn't have been touched. And so I think they're both thankful, and I, I, I just think we need to exist in a peaceful world. I saw the thing between Soldier Boy and Chris Brown where they were beefing yeah. and going to fight, and they was blood and all of this, and I wrote a post just tell, you know, as a sort of an elder of the village, you should see what happened to my boy Tupac. You should see what happened to, um, I don't know, whatever artist, ODB or whoever else got into situations or people who got shot or, you know, Mr. Ch- you know whoever it is. And so um, learn from that. And don't, don't, don't celebrate gangster. You know what you should celebrate? You should celebrate coding, you know? You yeah. should celebrate stock options, right? You should yeah. celebrate. That's... You know what I mean? You should yeah. celebrate when Jay Z tells you he bought a picture for one million. Next year's worth two million. Right. Five years later, worth eight million. And then he said, "I can't wait to give that to my children." That's game. Yeah. Right. And I think that that's you know I work in a business where you know a lot of times African American content is not owned by African Americans, and so that's my eyes to own my own shit. You know what I mean? Uh, and so that's where I'm at, man. So seeing C's and Edie get together, it's just advancement, man. We grown men, and you know. And putting and taking them back to the birthplace of hip hop, and the show about Tupac and Biggie, Edie and C's go with Soledad and O'Brien, and Ice T to fifteen twenty Sedgwick, which is the birthplace, and they hash it out. Yeah, you know, this is from a guy who, you know, Edie who Lil C's is you doped up or smoked up. Oh, I right. mean, come on, the guy dissed him on a record like in the most venomous diss record in the history of hip hop. Right. Now they got peace. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. Uh, we talked about music, how technology and and young people having a different mindset when they think about signing deals and corporations and how it's pushing them <coughs> excuse me to be independent do you think that we can see that in the visual medium in the next oh yeah 100 you got people like charles king who open up macro you got my boy jesse collins who owns his own jesse collins entertainment you know what i mean you got tyler perry you know i do think that more and more and more of us Issa ray who did her own thing and launched into her thing with HBO, you know, people, you can make a living and do your own thing, and you ain't got to work for somebody. Uh, I vacillate back and forth between working for myself and working mm-hmm. for people because I'm blessed. But, um, man, bro, you got to own, I mean, I, I'd hate to be honest, but a lot of times I do <laughs> unsung or different shows, and artists can't even license their own song. Yeah. They can't, they can't even do nothing with it. They sometimes don't even get paid from it. There's a one really famous, excuse me, R&B group, um, from the 70s, who I'm a big fan of, and been trying to do it unsung. And they don't want to do it because they don't own any of the music, none of the publishing, nothing. So if they did it unsung, they would get not one cent. Which is crazy because these deals have, you know, been in. You would think that after a while, the deals would revert no. to whatever. Because I know I no. talked to Mun, who we both know, yeah. Money B, and he was talking about how with Digital Underground, you know, they were work for hire. And it yeah. took years and years, but eventually... Well, I just, I just wrote a note on the contract that I told you about earlier and the line in there, work for hire on a show that I created. <laughs> Come on, man. And they, <laughs> call, they called me artist. Come on, man. Yeah. That's absolutely ridiculous. That's like you, you're a plantation worker in a big house. You know, you, you're doing all the work in the field, but you still got the big house. And so you got you to, you know, yeah, you got to keep your eyes on a meal ticket. You know, as as a as a TV guy, you know we have so many. You know, Netflix. We have all these YouTube oh, you series that are yeah. doing well. Do you see those things also helping, kind of push this old that's guard gonna give out you, the that's way? That's going to give you that's going to give you an ability to go tell stories and get more money 
on a platform that you ain't got to conform to a bunch of network BS, kiss a whole bunch of butt. If it's dope and they like it, they can give you some money. You can go produce it and get it popping. And you can fuck the system. You know, you can yeah. hip hop TV is a way for us to create our own streaming situation versus waiting for somebody else to do it. And so, me, it's always about, you know, thinking outside the box, bro. Fuck that. Most definitely. Man, dream project. Last cuss. What is your dream project? Uh, my still dream project is still the Roger Trotman piece, okay. which I've been pushing because I think he's the forefather and he's such an amazing. Uh, deep story, and his brother killed him. They killed himself, and right. Suge Knight was trying to recruit him to death row, and you know, oh, this wow, guy inspired, know. you know, everything. Uh, Dr. Dre, DJ Quick, all of that kind of stuff, which is bananas, you know. And um, I won't tell the whole thing, but you know, currently I do have um, a thirty for thirty of hip hop that's in motion, which would be all of the crazy hip hop stories that you know, and Dr. Dre leaving death row, the invention of the drum machine. Just like the Celtics versus the Lakers or whatever 30 for 30s you see, imagine that in the hip-hop world. And so that's another project which I think uh, people will like. That's amazing. Yo, appreciate you, brother, for sure. Please tell people where they can find you on social media. Uh, I'm, I'm a simple. I'm OG. You know what I'm saying? I drank 40s <laughs> in 86, 85. <laughs> I'm real, you know. I'm at, at P. Frank Williams at everything, P-R-F-N-K, P-R-P-F-R-A-N-K Williams. On Instagram, same thing on Twitter, same thing on Facebook. I don't have a whole bunch of, you know, madness. My company is www.profitfromit.com, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, from it.com. You know what I mean? And that's the way to, to bubble up and hit me up and find me. Yeah. I'm out in the universe trying to tell a story in a neighborhood near you. And September 24th, right? Uh, September 24th, Ice-T and Solar Brad O'Brien, um, who killed Biggie. DJ Wally Scott. Oh, yeah. I get around. Still clown with the underground when we come around. So hopefully y'all enjoyed that interview. Make sure you tune into the uh, the Tupac and Biggie special that's coming on Fox September 24th. Again, hosted by Soledad O'Brien and Ice-T. Should be very eye-opening. I know just the conversation alone had me ready to watch it and see what they had cooked up. And I was sitting in his office, man, and I was just looking at it. It was like a war room mm -hmm. with all the names and pictures and stuff on the wall and connecting dots from this to that. I was like, oh, this is going to be crazy. Y'all digging it's in for crazy. real. It's crazy. Like, like, it's been 20 years and it's like, it's like right when I think that there's no more new information on this stuff, you find out something new, whether it's, you know, a perspective from a person that you did not know was that close to the situation, you know what I'm saying, or something that, you know, you figured like, well, this had to have made it into the police report, you know, and it's not there, you know, it's like, like it, it never ceases to amaze me, like, you know what I'm saying, because right, right when you think you're tired and heard enough, or heard everything there is to hear about the Tupac and Biggie story, you know, here comes another piece of information that really, really goes in. Yeah, I mean, you got to also think, man, it's, it's about the money that's behind it and the notoriety that's behind it, too, because a lot of these big networks are spending money in greenlighting projects because hip-hop or urban or whatever tag they want to put on it, content is doing well. Like, you got... Donald Glover winning Emmys, you know, plural for Atlanta. You know, you have It's a Ray's Success with Insecure, which the underlying of that is hip hop. You have the NWA movie that did exceptionally well. You know, you have the Tupac movie that garnered all kind of attention. So it's when, you know, people respect dollars and cents, man. If they see you can spend a minimal amount of money on something and get a, a great return. No matter what the topic is, they gonna go in. And we living in a time now where hip hop is pop culture. It's been that way for a while. So And you know what, man? Like, you know, I mean, of course, like, you know, Tupac and Biggie are the obvious, you know, because I mean, they've passed away and you know, people tend to do movies on folks that have passed away. But even just period, man, it's like I'm no movie buff, but it I remember I now I think I remember more hip hop movies coming out more than any other genre. Like, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I don't know how many country western singers have had movies made about them, dead or alive. 
rock movies. Like, I've never seen a Rolling Stones movie as great as they are. I've yet to see a U2 movie as great as they are. Yeah. I haven't seen a Nirvana Kurt Cobain movie produced yet. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. it's probably as... hella documentaries yeah. on that stuff. I know there's a great um, documentary on the label. What label were they on? They have a store in the Seattle airport. I'm completely and totally drawing a blank. But the 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 dope, super dope grunge label in Seattle, I know there's a documentary on that. But you're absolutely right. And I guess it's because, you know, a lot of times, like, hip-hop is a global, universal genre of music. Like, I think that you are more likely to find cats that listen to Pac that don't look like they listen to Pac than you are to find people that listen to the White Stripes that don't look like they listen to the White Stripes, if that makes any sense. Not trying to be, you know, prejudice or nothing, but that's just what I see in my travels around the world. You know what I mean? It's You ain't going to go into many quote-unquote black clubs nowhere and hear a whole set of rock music. You're not going to go into a club anywhere in America, especially now that open format has taken over for what EDM was in the clubs and not hear hip-hop. It's a universal music. You know, straight up. So I think that's a lot of the reason why. Um, but it's, it's, I love it, man. Keep it coming. I hope more of us, especially the one thing that I thought was super dope about Donald Glover in Atlanta winning is that that writing staff is extremely diverse. His brother is the head writer who didn't have a lot of experience writing stuff. You have, I believe, an Asian woman who is a writer as well or high up on there. You have an Asian dude that's one of the executive producers, like, that's big, man. Mm-hmm. Like, and he was in complete control over that show. I think, I don't know if he told the story, Devon Houston, did he tell the story on the air or not about Donald Glover when they were shooting the uh, the promo stuff for Mm-mm. Atlanta? Mm-mm. Okay, well, we're not going to tell that story. <laughs> but <laughs> it was, a, it was a, a pretty deep story into how much in control Donald Glover was over that program so that's big and it's just you know we see each other on television all the time now you know but them writers rooms is where we need to be for real for real because it's way too much stuff that's on tv and on the web that is marketed towards the inner city or urban communities or black or whatever you want to put on it that ain't got nobody that knows anything about that life in the room right and that's from the get down, which is worth spend millions on down the stuff you see on Complex. Like, that's just a reality. So hopefully with these awards and this critical acclaim, things will change, man. We need it to change for sure. But uh, we are, let's see, we in the middle of football. So you boycotting? I don't know if I count as a boycotter because, like, honestly, man, I haven't actively watched football in some seasons now. Like, I watched the playoffs in the Super Bowl, obviously, but, like, I haven't, like, actively watched football like that, like, every Sunday like I used to. Right. Maybe since 2013, you know what I'm saying? Uh Like, you know, I keep up, you know what I'm saying, with the standings and, you know, whatever, whatever, but, so I don't don't know if I count as a boycott because, like, I I haven't been watching it. (laughs) Hey, I feel you. I I personally, man, I say do what you want to do. As long as you're not being hypocritical, I ain't judging nobody. All I can say is this. Unless you're a Nielsen household, what you watch on your TV really don't matter. Like, ain't nobody counting what you watch. That's not affecting the bottom line. It ain't keeping the NFL from making money at all. If you want to boycott, boycott them sponsors. Sit down and watch if you want to watch. Write down the sponsors. Write down the advertisers. Stop buying their products and make it known. That is what affects the bottom line. And also, don't go to the stadiums. Don't pay for parking. Don't go to a sports bar during when the NFL is on. Make it hurt across the board if you really want to make a difference. That's yeah, like what you it said, is. Like, do, do what you want to do. Just don't be hypocritical about it. It, it was funny because, like, even when I find myself, you know, when I get asked that question by others or if I find myself in a conversation about football, it's like, the first thing that pops in my mind is, it, oh, nigga, you watching football? We supposed to be boycotting. You know what I'm saying? It's like. All right, man, you watching football. All right, cool. You know what I'm saying? But, I mean, if you if you feel like you need to boycott, I mean, I, I get it. I absolutely get it. Yeah, you know people just like to do easy shit in order to make a difference. Like, I'm going to turn the channel. You ain't affected nothing. <laughs> do something. Like, affect, man, this, this country moves off of 
power and money. Don't nobody care about your emotions at the end of the day. So stop it and stop trying to ridicule people. And another dude, we live in a SEO driven society. So whether you mention it positively or negatively, if you keep yeah. mentioning football in the NFL yeah. on social media, then yeah. you are helping them yeah. bounce up in yeah. search engines. Be smart, man. So just stop being an armchair activist, a social media gangster. Like, that shit is corny, man. Do something. Be strategic with how you move, for sure. And if, you, and if you're having a sports uh, hangover and don't know how to live without football, don't worry. The NBA is right around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> I think the preseason starts September 30th. So <laughs> you'll have yeah. something to watch other than baseball. Yeah, now, now, I still watch basketball fairly often. Like, you know, I, I, I have fallen off on my you know, sports watching over the last few years, period. But, like, basketball, I'm still going to watch some hoop. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. We well, we appreciate y'all listening. Uh, make sure that you subscribe, rate, and review. Let us know you're listening. Tell a friend to tell a friend. And we'll see you next week with another dope show.